0: Good morning, church. It's so great to see each of you here today in this beautiful fall day. Um, We have been in a sermon series this fall on the metaphors of the church that we find in the Bible. And we've been calling this series Welcome because we believe, and the Bible teaches such, that it is through the church that God is extending his welcome to every person on the planet, literally, literally. Through the church, God is is inviting every person first out of isolation and into real community, real relationships of love. And second, God is inviting every person out of self-centeredness and restlessness and into a life of real meaning and real purpose and mission. And so we've been looking at all these metaphors and how they reinforce these truths. We've seen that we are brothers and sisters in a common household or oikos of the father, We saw that we are living stones in the temple of the Spirit, that we are salt and light in the darkness of the world. We saw that we are plantings in the field of the Lord. We're sheep in the flock of the shepherd, diverse parts in the body of Christ. And all of these metaphors have been reinforcing these two great things, that first of all, we are called into relationship to live in community with each other. And then we're called outwardly to extend the mission of God In the world. And so I really hope that nobody here, that nobody who has been here for any of these sermons in this fall, can leave this fall still believing that church is a building you go to on Sunday where you hear a good message. But we know now this this, these great truths that the church is nothing less than the community that Jesus has drawn together by his grace and then sends out to extend that grace to the world. That, my friends, is the church. And so today, we are looking at this last and final metaphor, uh, the bride, that the the church is the bride of the bridegroom, Christ. Now, this is probably one of the most important metaphors uh, in the whole Bible. It could also be, I want to acknowledge here, that it could be one of the toughest ones. I know this is the case for some of you men. I actually had a conversation with a guy this week who I told him what I was talking about, and he said... He had a really hard time thinking of himself as a bride. And um, I just want to encourage you this, men. Don't forget that your sisters here have ha- often have to do this. And read Galatians 4. Paul says, you are all sons of God through Jesus Christ. It's a metaphor. It requires stretching, imagination, right? We're all sons. We're all brides. Men, I think you can deal with that, all right? <laughs> are we together on that? Um, I also, though, want to acknowledge that, that, that this may be difficult for you for, for personal reasons, uh, I know that there are many of you who are single, and you long to be married, and so this metaphor might be sort of tough and awkward. Uh, I know that many of you are divorced, and, and thinking of yourself as, as a bride or thinking of your own marriage is painful, or maybe you're in a painful and difficult marriage yourself. I want to acknowledge that, uh, but also recognize the fact that this, what this metaphor shows us is that every marriage no matter how broken or how messed up a marriage may be, it is all pointing to something beautiful that every single person can experience. That no matter how, whether you're married or single, no matter how messed up your life is, no matter how messed up your marriage is, or whatever place you find yourself in life, this is pointing to the good news that God loves you. And that God wants an intimate, unbreakable relationship with you. That is the great truth of this metaphor that all of us are called to experience. So let's, well, let's, let's do this. Let's read God's Word together. Uh, let's pray, and then let's explore what this metaphor means for us. Okay, so, so pray with me now. Father, we thank you for this metaphor of the bride, and we do pray that you would help us this morning to not just understand this, uh, but to believe it and to respond to it with obedience and love. Help me, help all of us with the power of the Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've got two scripture readings this morning, one old, one new. From the, uh, first from the Old Testament, Isaiah 62. Hear God's word. This is God speaking to his people Israel. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication, all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name, your land, desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah, which means my delight. And you will be called, your land will be called Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you. Your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then the second reading is from Revelation 19 and 22. This is John speaking about this great vision and that he sees the end of all things. He says this, "'Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, "'for the wedding of the Lamb has come, "'and his bride has made herself ready. "'Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. "'Fine linen stands for the righteous acts "'of God's holy people. "'Then the angel said to me, "'Write this, blessed are those who are invited "'to the wedding supper of the Lamb.'" And he added, "'These are the true words of God. "'The Spirit and the bride say, "'Come.'" And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him come. Take the free gift of the water of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. One of the great works of film uh, in the 20th century was a simple movie made in 1927 called Sunrise. Uh, a song of two humans. This is considered a a groundbreaking film that charted the course for many other films in the course of the 20th century. Uh, It's a silent film. It's a really beautiful story. It tells the story of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who after being in love for many years, uh, the man eventually grows tired and bored, and he begins to kindle a relationship with another woman. And his wife eventually discovers his betrayal. She discovers his faithfulness his unfaithfulness, and obviously her pain is devastating, completely overwhelming. And there's this very amazing scene where the two of them are arguing with each other in the town square, Uh, and suddenly they look up and they see a bride entering into a church building for her wedding, and they end up wandering and following her in, witnessing the ceremony. And at the point where the, the bride and the groom stand to take their vows, the man's heart is broken. He realizes what he's done. He sees the way that he has betrayed his wife and broken his covenant. And so he weeps, and he confesses, and he pleads with her for her forgiveness. And she does. She forgives him. And they're reconciled. And, and, and later that evening, they go out on a little boat on a lake to spend some time together. And suddenly, a great storm rises up upon the lake, and it tosses the boat, and it overturns it. And the man and the woman are thrown into the water. And the the man only wakes up later from being unconscious only to find that his wife is now missing. And he searches for her. And he calls in a search party, and they search for her. She cannot be found. And so he goes home, cut to the heart, grieved with himself of how he could have done this to his wife, grieved that he could not protect her from death, and he takes up a knife about to take his own life. And suddenly there's a knock at the door, and it opens, and it's her. She's been found. And they're reunited again forever. I mean, what a story, right? This is such a great story. It's a, it's a story on what so many other epic stories of love that we now know so well have been built on. And what I want you to see this morning, friends, is that the Bible, and I know some of you second graders were here, you're going to get a Bible tonight, your own Bible. And what the Bible is, essentially, is a story like that. It's a story, a true story of love between a husband and a wife. A story of promise-making, a story of betrayal, a story of forgiveness and reconciliation, and ultimately a story of consummation. Let me just kind of go over the way this story works with you, okay? It begins with a wedding. It begins with a covenant. After, after God's people uh, fall and turn away from him, God comes to his people again in the book of Genesis, and he makes a covenant with them, which is a binding agreement, He says, I am making an everlasting covenant with you. You will be my people and you and I will be your God. That's how much God loves his people that he binds himself to them just like in a wedding ceremony with a binding, everlasting commitment of love. But unfortunately, if you know this story, you know that this ends up being one of the rockiest marriages in history. God ends up, turns out his bride is Bridezilla. uh, And turns out that that this marriage is an incredibly difficult marriage. And the bride, the church, uh, c- continues in this path of infidelity, in which again and again, turning to false gods, turning to the wrong lovers. At one point, God says in the prophets, my people go after other lovers. They have forgotten their maker, their husband. And it, com- it gets to the point at the end of the Old Testament when the marriage is in total ruins, the bride has gone so far away and astray that she is in exile. She's in bondage. And, and, and there seems to be no hope for this marriage at all. Divorce and separation seem to be certain. But then the astonishing thing happens. Instead of moving away, God draws Near, He takes a step closer. He shows up enfleshed in the person Jesus who calls himself the bridegroom. Read Matthew 9. He is the husband who's come back to, to win his bride. He is the lover who has returned to restore and pursue his lost beloved. And he does the unthinkable, not just by setting aside his glory and taking on the flesh of humanity, but ultimately by taking the place of his bride's own condemnation, dying her death, taking upon her her guilt and sin, all so that a husband and wife could be united again forever. Like we sang this morning, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And now all, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus the bridegroom are drawn in to become a part of his bride, the church. But then the story continues, and it enters into another difficult part of the marriage, and it's the part that we're living in now. It's the time of separation in which the church is united to the bridegroom through the Spirit by faith, but we're physically separated from a bridegroom. We don't see him, And and we're waiting, and and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and at times the waiting seems endless. Sometimes it seems like the bridegroom may never come at all. And we wait through struggles, and we wait through hardships, and we wait through doubt, and we wait through unbelief, and yet we endure with this hope that our bridegroom comes. And then we look at the end of the Bible, and we see there is this great culmination of the wedding feast of the Lamb. When the bride in the groom, are finally brought together again, and there is an epic party, and the kingdom of God comes forever. See, friends, this is an amazing story. You could make a movie about this. Maybe one of you might. This is an amazing story of what Jesus, the bridegroom, has done for his bride, the church. You could sum this up with Sally Lloyd-Jones' great phrase that the Bible is the story of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. He is the groom who will not stop ever, until he claims his bride as his own. Friends, this metaphor is so powerful because what we're seeing is, you know, we've looked at a lot of metaphors this fall that tell us about our relationship with God. We've seen that God is a king, relating to us as his subjects, uh, that he's a mason, relating to us as bricks, not a particularly warming uh, metaphor. Uh, we've seen that he's a shepherd, relating to us as sheep. He's a, even a father, relating to us as children. But, and all of those metaphors are good. They all tell us something about a relationship with God. But in the end, do you see, they're not quite deep enough. Because in the end, God says, this is the kind of relationship that I want with you, That of a husband to a wife. That is how deep. That is how intimate. That is how vulnerable. That is how permanent. God says, until you see me, not just as a shepherd, not just as a king, not just as a father, but actually as a lover, you will not know truly what it means to be in relationship with me. Friends, do you know that? Have you experienced God in that way? Not just as a father, but as a bridegroom, as a lover is pursuing you in his great love, you were built for that, you're made for that, that is the kind of relationship that God desires with us, his people. Isn't that amazing? So what are, if this is true, what are the implications of this for us, his church, his people? I just want to tease out a few implications for this metaphor and what it means for us. The first is dignity. And what I mean by that is, if this is true, we have great Dignity as God's church, knowing that we belong to the bridegroom, that we are the beloved. One of my most favorite passages is this Isaiah 62 passage that we read this morning that says this in verse two. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Now, marriage often involves a change of name. I'm sure that some of you ladies, when you were married, had to change or chose to change. Uh, Your your surname. And maybe increasingly is the case with some men. Maybe even as a man, you might have changed your name or a portion of your name. But there's another kind of name change that happens when you get married, and that is actually sort of the power to remake your, your identity, the power that marriage has to reshape your own sense of self. Because, see, when you get married, your spouse's voice becomes the most loud and most influential voice in your life, for better or for worse. Because they see you completely and totally as you are. You know, if one of you came up after the service today and said, uh, Corey, you are just such a kind man. You know, that'd be real nice. But honestly, you know, I, 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 can, I can portray a persona of being a kind pastor. You know, you don't really know me. You don't see the way I treat my kids. You don't see the way I treat my dog. You know, you don't, you don't see those things. But if Sarah, my wife, came up to me After the service, and said, You're such a kind man. Well, that would mean the world. Why? Because she sees me completely. She knows everything. She sees me as I am all the time. You know, if all your life uh, you have thought of yourself as ugly and unattractive, but your spouse who sees you literally naked, literally as you fully are, and says, You are beautiful, you are lovely, then you will be lovely. You will think of yourself as lovely. If all your life you've been called a fool and your spouse says you're brilliant, you are named brilliant. See, that's the power of marriage. It says naming power that we have the power to mark each other with a new name. Despite all that we have been called, we have the power to shape each other to be a new name and that's what God says he wants to do for us in Isaiah 62 he comes to his broken and forsaken people his people who are overwhelmed by their failings and their sin and and they look at themselves and all they see is ruin and desolation and God says I'm giving you a new name no longer will you go by the name desolate I love you and therefore now your name is my delight no longer he says will you be called forsaken I love you and therefore, your name is now beautiful. See, no matter what others say, no matter what your parents called you, no matter what your boss says to you, no matter what your internal voice of shame says about you, if God calls you by a new name, if God calls you beloved, then that is what you are. That's what you carry. See, there's at least two kinds of love in the world. There is the kind of love that is always pursuing you know, what is the most rich or the most smart or the most beautiful or the most worthy or the most put together. That's easy love. That's, that's love that is already looking for something that is worthy of affection. But there is a different kind of love in this world, and that is the kind of love that seeks to bestow value on the object of love. Uh, this, this, is my, uh, this is snowy. This is my little sister's bear that she was given when she was three years old. This bear uh, has has been a the most important possession slash person uh, in her life. She's attached to this bear, carry this bear everywhere, go hysterical if the bear was ever missing. Uh, this snowy has been through the ringer. He has been lost. He has been run over by a car. Um, I may or may not have enacted his execution several <laughs> times to. Uh, Mess with my sister. He has been sewn back together. He has had facelifts. He has had nose jobs. Um, he's had all kinds of nips and tucks. He's had whole body parts replaced. My sister is 38 years old, and she still sleeps with this bear, though she is married and has a child. Now, if you, if you saw Snowy today sitting there on the floor, you would think nothing of this bear. But I tell you, friends, this is the most valuable bear in the world. Why? Because my sister has named him so. G.K. Chesterton once said, the great lesson of the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast is that a thing must be loved in order to be lovable. A thing must be loved to be lovable. And this is the great truth of the gospel, that God has loved us with this kind of love, that he sees us in all of our tatteredness, our failings, and our sin, and our shame, and our brokenness, the things that we work so hard to hide from each other. And he says, you are worthy of my love. And he calls us by a new name. He says, your old name that is shameful and broken and sinful, I've given that name to Jesus on the cross. And his name of the beloved child of God, I've now given to you. This is who you are. You are the beloved one. Friends, can you imagine what it would be like to live that, to believe that about yourself, and to be in a community that believes that about each other? This is is what we're called to do as the church. First of all, you are called to remember every day if you know Jesus Christ, that you are the beloved one, that despite my sin and selfishness, I am loved and prized by the bridegroom. It doesn't matter what any other voices say. It doesn't matter what that guy, the guy who yelled out idiot to me when I was parallel parking yesterday. you know, It doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter what any other voice says. You will only be free when the voice of the bridegroom is the loudest in your life. You'll only be free when the name that he gives you the Beloved, when that name is the most defining name that you carry. Live as the Beloved. But not only that, as a church, we're called to cultivate an environment in which together we remember that we are the Beloved. It's not just me that's the Bride of Christ. It's all of us together that are the Bride of Christ. And so we cultivate an environment in which we help each other to remember that we are the Beloved of God. There's many times when you will find yourself in community and... and Difficult and painful and icky things will emerge from the person that you're called to love. And you are called not just to see those things, but to see their new name. That they are the beloved. And to speak that word of truth to your brother. To speak that word of truth to your sister. That we are, as in the words of Henry Nouwen, we are the community of the beloved. And that's who we are. We have great dignity because of that truth. So friends, that's the first truth, is that we have dignity because we are the bride of the bridegroom. Second, though, another great truth of this is fidelity. This metaphor of marriage is used in a way throughout the Bible to urge us to remain faithful to the bridegroom, to endure in our covenant with him through all the ups and downs of life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, "'I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ,' but I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So you see what Paul's doing. He's using this metaphor to urge his friends to be faithful to Jesus, the bridegroom. He names all these many temptations, different gospels, different messages, even different Jesuses that are constantly wooing us away from pure devotion to Christ. This is actually a huge theme in the whole Bible. Read the book of Hosea. That's what this book is about. That book even goes so far to say is that The sin of God's people is actually spiritual adultery, breaking the heart of the bridegroom. It says that God is a jealous God, which means just as a lover burns with jealousy for the affection of the beloved, so God burns with jealousy because he desires our exclusive loyalty and affection. He does not want us to give our hearts to other gods. And you may be saying, you know, what are you talking about? I don't worship other gods. You know, I, I, don't, I don't mess. I don't, I'm not playing around with other religions. You know, I come to church. I have my kids baptized. You know, what do you mean? Well, listen, this is what I mean. Imagine a scenario in which a couple is married, but the husband spends all of his time hanging out with another woman. He takes her to dinner, buys her gifts, writes her notes, spends time in her company, and his wife confronts him, and he says what are you so upset about we're legally married you have my money i work hard for this family i pay the mortgage i've done my duty what's the problem the problem is is that she does not have his heart she does not have his deepest loyalty maybe he hasn't broken marital law but he has broken her trust he's broken her heart and that's what god says to his people he says sure you go to church sure you give some of your money sure you keep the rules but do I have your heart? Have you given your heart to someone or something else? Is there something else that you're living for that has your deepest affection? See, friends, this was a hard lesson for me to learn that sin isn't just breaking the law. Sin is breaking relationship. That's what sin is. It, it's, it's breaking trust with the bridegroom, the one who loves you. And, and you and I do this every time we make anything in our lives more important than the bridegroom. When something or someone other than Jesus becomes a greater priority, a stronger voice, a deeper love, if your career or your money becomes more important to your identity and self-image, the Bible calls that spiritual adultery. If having a family or kids or your physical appearance or some pursuit or ambition or political cause or whatever it may be, if anything becomes more defining and central in your life than Jesus Christ, the Bible calls that spiritual adultery adultery. And God is pleading with us for our good. He's saying, look, these are fatal attractions. They will kill you. The reason you're addicted, the reason you're depressed, the reason you're so worried is because something other than the bridegroom has claimed your heart. So stop giving yourself to false lovers. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. That is the great message of the scripture. And that is how we grow in the Christian life, ever realizing the straying nature of our hearts and ever returning to the God who loves us. As we sing in the hymn week by week, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Friends, if you're a Christian, you are married to God, and this is an exclusive relationship. A Christian does not obey because she's afraid of judgment. Christians are not afraid of judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians obey because they want to be faithful to their lover and because they know that the bridegroom comes and they want to be true to the one who has given everything to them. So that's fidelity. Are you staying true to the one who loves you? But the last implication of this metaphor after dignity, after fidelity, is hospitality. And that may be surprising to you. All of us are interested in the end of history, right? That's a big theme these days. How is the world going to end? What is our final and ultimate destination? We worry about this. We fret about this. We make movies about this. Will it be an asteroid? Will it be a climate catastrophe or a nuclear holocaust or a zombie apocalypse? You know, what is it going to be? How is it all going to end? Well, guess what, friends? The Bible tells us how the world is going to end And get this, the world ends with a party. A party. You guys don't seem very excited about this. Uh, Read Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is an amazing chapter because after the whole book of Revelation which tells the story of this epic battle between God and Satan, between the, the armies of heaven and the armies of evil, the whole thing ends with God taking Satan and flicking him into the abyss, and then throwing an epic party for all who belong to him. That's how history ends, with a feast, a wedding feast. And this is a feast in which the bride and the groom are finally reunited. They finally, we see Jesus again face to face, where tears are dried, and death is defeated, and evil is destroyed, and the earth is recreated as a place of eternal joy. Friends, that's how it all ends. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're longing for. And who is invited to this great feast? Well, look at what our text says in verse 9 from Revelation. John says this, or the angel says this to John, write this down, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He tells them to write it because it's an invitation. He's saying, get out your, your cards and your envelopes, get out your pens and your pencils, you know, if you prefer to do an Evite, that's cool. Get out your laptop, you know, get out your paperless post whatever. But he says, "Send out this invitation." And who should he send it to? We'll look at verse 17. "Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him come. Let him come and take the free gift of the water of life." Friends, every single person is invited to the feast. Anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is hungry, anyone who is tired and wants to come. I will always remember a most unusual wedding that I officiated of a couple, some of you know them, Murray and Lauren Withrow. Murray is actually one of our mission partners, he's, he's working as a missionary down in the East End. And when Murray and Lauren got married, they wanted to have a wedding in which everyone was invited. And so I was pastoring East End Fellowship at the time. And so what we did is we canceled the service, the normal service at four o'clock in the afternoon, and we had their wedding at four o'clock in the afternoon instead. So everyone who just happened to show up on Sunday just came to their wedding and everybody was, everybody was invited. All sorts of people showed up, people who barely even knew them. And then afterwards they threw a big party in Chimborazo Park again, Everybody was invited, all sorts of people showing up. In fact, this, hap- this actually happened. Murray told me this yesterday, that a woman at some point during the party came up to Murray and Lauren, put her arms around them, and just said, this is such a great party. Y'all are such a great couple. And she talked and talked to them, went on about five minutes, and then she walked away. And Murray said, do you know who that was? And Lauren said, no, I thought you knew her. Turns out she just walked off the street. She just walked off the street to join the party because those are the kind of people that they are who want to extend the invitation to all come. All who would desire to come may come. Friends, that is the church. That is a beautiful picture of the church. This is what we do. We are the bride preparing for the feast, but there are a whole lot of other people who are invited too. People who are afraid. People who don't know what they're living for people who are sad and devastated by loss, people whose lives have been broken and shattered, people who are numb and frankly don't even know that they have a longing for God, people who will never, ever, ever show up here on Sunday morning, 100 million people in the U.S. alone who have never been to church nor have any intention to go there, and a whole lot of those people are your neighbors. We say to them, come. This is why we're changing the way that we do church. This is why we're doing the parish model, so that we can actually be in the communities where the thirsty and hungry people are. Friends, we have an invitation. And we take it out because we are a people of hospitality who want as many friends and neighbors to be at the party, sitting at the table with us, drinking fantastic wine and epic food and toasting the defeat of death. And the triumph of the bridegroom. Friends, we are the bride of Christ. And that means at least these three things. And I want you to think about this as we close. First, dignity. We are the beloved of God. Let me ask you this. How are you going to cultivate intimacy with the bridegroom this week? God wants your heart. How are you going to cultivate intimacy with the bridegroom? And who do you need to remind that they are the beloved? What brother, what sister needs to hear that truth, that they are the beloved of God this week? Dignity. Fidelity. How will you seek to remain faithful this week to the one who loves you? Maybe you've been convicted by something in your own life, even just this morning. How will you return to the Lord and seek to remain faithful to the bridegroom this week? And third, hospitality. Hospitality. How will you get the invitation out? What hungry and thirsty neighbor, what hungry and thirsty colleague, what hungry and thirsty person needs to know that they too are welcome and that they too can be called the beloved? Friends, the secret to life is knowing that you are loved. It is living in that love. It is dwelling in that love together in community. And it is sharing that love with anyone and everyone who would desire to come. As John Donne once famously wrote, "Take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me." Brothers and sisters, may we never cease to be ravished by the bridegroom of our souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are indeed the bridegroom and you have given yourself fully and completely for us, your bride. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that are weary and thirsty and hungry and tired and who long to come to your love, to the feast today, that they would take the invitation to come, that they would hear the words of the Spirit and the bride saying, come, come today. I pray for those of us who are far away, those of us who have strayed, uh, those of us who've been unfaithful, that we too would hear that invitation, that we would come, and that we would return to the bridegroom who loves us, not because we fear him, but because we love him. And we pray for the many people in our lives who long uh, for wholeness, who long to be fed. Pray that we would be the bearers of that invitation to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.